Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Straight Talk Radio, where we talk about pretty much anything, whether that's technology, business, politics, or culture. This is Donya Keating. I'm your host. I'm coming live to you from the Seattle area at about 2.30 Pacific Time, Thursday, December 17th. Listeners, you can dial 646-378-0261 to offer live on-air questions or comments. Press 1 on your keypad when you're ready, or if the chat feature uh, feels better, just use that. This afternoon's topic is adapt or die, why tech isn't just for geeks anymore, because whether it's knowing how to write code or being articulate about the impact of technology on the 21st century economy or ensuring today's students are versed in important STEAM, and STEAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Art, and Math, subjects and skill sets, it's long been clear that the days of geeks hiding in dark rooms and just coding away from the rest of the world is it's pretty much an outdated notion. I mean, there are some that still do that, but today we're talking about something a little bit more expansive uh, in terms of our competitive advantage. So not only will the simplest coding languages help you understand and use the web with its many games and apps, and that's certainly one um, example of applications, but there are many jobs that use a computer. According to Code.org, Two-thirds of open computing jobs fall outside of the tech sector, and those are fields such as journalism, uh, finance, entertainment, medicine. So understanding coding and technology, it also offers a level of mental exercise that kind of translates into uh, many different career options, and it helps you to adapt by doing so. Today, we're going to be talking with Charles Keating, who chimes in regularly, but um, He's kind of our official guest today, and he's wearing his West Sound Technology Association hat. He's the president, he's a co-founding member, and he's also the president of Keating Consulting Service, Inc., which is an information technology consulting firm. They work with a national client base, and uh, he uh, is going to discuss our code, technology, uh, the future. If we have a little time, we might even talk a little bit about Common uh, Core. So welcome, Charles. Are you out there? I am. Yay. Welcome. We've walked this plank before in other episodes, but for those who don't know you, why don't you give us your background, uh, first with WSTA and then with Keating Consulting Service. Okay, so I've been president of West Sound Technology since 2009. The organization has been around since 2000. We were there uh, right from the beginning, the second meeting of the organization. So, I mean, it's been several hundred meetings this organization was formed to basically promote a technology company in the West Sound region. Uh, there's, you know, we're close to the Seattle market, and there's a lot of obviously uh, major tech companies East Puget Sound region. Um, and it, realistically, there's a, there was a desire to create more local opportunities in our region. So that was kind of the founding of the organization uh, for technology professionals. And it quickly became clear back uh, a long time ago that technology is more than just for the geeks. And this is uh, right up the alley of this topic as well. It's not just about the geeks. It's really about economic development and where everything is going. 
So we changed the name to West Sound Technology Association back in 2007-2008 uh, to basically uh, be more inclusive. So that's been the background with WSTA. And then my own personal background, I have been, I started as a geek um, programming when I was a sophomore in high school. So uh, I've been doing this a really, really, really long time. And, uh, you know, um, obviously now I'm an IT consultant with a diverse set of clients, everywhere from mom and pop shops to uh, Boeing and everything in between. And I do lots of programming projects and high-end consulting. Sometimes I'm hands-on. Sometimes I just write the plan, and other people are executing the plan. So uh, I come from a diverse set of skill sets, and I guess I bring that kind of same set of diverse skill sets and working with uh, all, all types of companies and leaders uh, with West Sound Technology Association. We decided to broach today's topic, and thanks for that, by the way, because Computer Science Education Week just ended. Um, it was from the 8th through the 14th of December, and with it, the Hour of Code Initiative, which was a worldwide initiative. So can you speak to what that is and the role you and your organization played in that and some of the deliverables and the partnerships and then ultimately the successes? Okay. So our code our, is uh, an event inside Computer Science Education Week. Uh, it was started by the organization Code.org that uh, Hottie and his brother, ex-Microsofties, uh, decided that you know, we needed a lot more people involved with programming, that programming is not just a small subset skill that a few people need to be skilled in, but that is a skill set that is now part of uh, it should be part of our common curriculum. Everybody needs to know programming, not even just students, but literally everyone. So their initial focus with Code.org was to really get you know, students in engaged and interested. And it works just as well for adults because their ultimate target market is everyone in the world learning uh, the basics, fundamentals of programming. So that uh, computers and automation aren't a black box to so many people that you don't have people running around saying, hey, I, I know nothing about computers or I, I've never programmed or anything. You want people to understand what fundamentally is involved because so much of our economy, almost everything is going to be uh, having some degree of automation in the future. And that's going to involve you know, being able to approach systems in a systems way and being able to write, even if it's simple programs, to be able to interface and work with these systems. So Computer Science Education Week, educational focused on students, uh, last year, we had some 5,000 students, 22 districts. This year, I think we blew it out. I think we had about three times as many. I know we had uh, 66 schools, several complete districts. We estimate uh, about three, three times the number of total students. I mean, it's really been broadly accepted. Uh, very wonderful. Lots of students. Uh, we did four events with Kitsap Regional Library. Well attended. Uh, and the interesting thing was it wasn't just young kids. You had parents, older since seniors sitting down and learning programming for the first time and really being very fully focused and engaged in getting it. And it wasn't just, you know, some simple programming. It was also in some cases visual programming. It was designing gaming environments. And uh, I know Merrill was, was, was engaged with that too. It was just wonderful to see all the diverse things that they're starting to do now. This has just been a springboard to launch into other initiatives. You mentioned earlier 22 districts from last year. I think you probably meant 22 schools. Um, 
But I yeah, also cool. wanted to say that the 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 picture there's a, a slideshow that goes with this um, episode, and one of those photos speaks to your point, and it has an older fellow with a really young girl, and that was re- very illustrative of what happened at Hour of Code. It it spans all ages, nationalities, genders, everything. Whoever wants to be there is there, and I think what really stood out for me because I went to some of your events is, you know, there was one instance where somebody came who had never even thought about coding and they were a much older woman. And it was just very interesting to see how engrossed and genuinely interested and intrigued that she was um, by coding. She was just totally absorbed in the, in the tablet. And we got some great shots from that and other kids. It was just, you know, it's just kind of a validation of all the things that we're talking about. And of course, like anything in life, when something good and aha out there is in play, there are always people who jump in with a counterpoint. And so some of the comments that I just saw come in on the chat, um, maybe because it's valid, uh, maybe it's to promote food for thought and vet a concept, which which is fine. But sometimes it's just easier to wait for a target and, and to let other people go out there and, and, and uh, take a risk, and then you just find a small thing that, that isn't going right. So anything, anyhow, what what I'm getting at is, you know, I've seen comments out there about how it's fruitless to push computer science degrees because the curriculum is outdated before students graduate and enter the workplace or that they can get jobs without needing to get a four-year degree and be saddled with student debt. And, you know, there are some some validity to that. But, you know, curriculum has almost always been outdated before students graduate because it's based upon textbooks that are outdated, you know, just by definition. But things like Hour of Code are great for kickstarting early interest. Um, but it's hard to ignore that there's a real issue regarding access to ongoing computer science education in classrooms and local communities. Uh, There's not enough funding, uh, infrastructure, lack of academic credit, not enough seats at UW, if you want to use a local example. And then you hear about from um, our largest employers like Google or Microsoft or Amazon or Facebook, uh, even locally with Avalara or ATS and Paladin, that they're having a difficult time filling the talent gap there. So it makes me wonder how truly engaged um, the counterpointers are when we keep hearing about these placement issues from people that are have their boots on the ground and they're trying to fill those seats. My question to you, after all of that preface, is what are your thoughts as someone who's tackling this issue from the educational nonprofit perspective? You're also an employer, you're a consultant, you're an industry expert, and you're also an advocate. So what are your thoughts about um, some of that computer science degree type stuff? Like, like all good controversies, there's a kernel of truth in the counter-arguments. Um, first off, so both sides of the argument. Uh, one, we definitely need more compu- skilled computer science graduates. The need is there. Uh, there are major tech industries, East Puget Sound region, um, that, that would, could employ a lot more people and has been a driving force for them trying to seek and import talent from elsewhere. And in fact, Washington State's entire economy as an engine is almost driven on importing talent. And they do recognize all the problems you described, not enough seats at UW, not enough computer science graduates, not enough engineering graduates, um, a need to focus on technology as a broad skill. All those things are true. Uh, even this, you know, the schools, K-12, feeding the pipeline, realizing there's not enough computer science degree programs out there. All that's true. Now, part of it is, why wasn't it built a long time ago? Well, there was a point in time where there was a dip in the uh, computer industry back in the 2000 and the dot bomb, there was an actual de- uh, decline in computer science interest. And I think there was even a point in time when me as a person inside the field saw a shift away from developing software to supporting systems and that a lot of the actual programming and development jobs 
seem to be shipped overseas. But tech is very dynamic. Things change. And educational systems and economies don't necessarily change as fast as some of the stuff comes to us. So what's happened here is with mobility and the Internet taking off, there's a lot more uh, cloud resources being developed. We're kind of retooling a lot of the tools that were created. You know, we went from mainframes to microcomputers to the Internet to application development to mobility. So the needs have changed. Flipping actually, and then, of course, there's also these huge server farms as well, where more of the servers and the hardware is now in the cloud and not necessarily at the end user website, uh, sites. So it seems like the shift, the shift has oscillated. There used to be a lot of programmers and some hardware people, and certainly people building hardware. Hardware became standardized. They needed less engineers to build stuff and more people to do programming. Then it shifted to where they needed more people to maintain stuff, and now we need more programmers again. So, yeah, it's a yo-yo. So there is a bit of chaos in all of this. But undeniably, any way you slice it, there is a trend that everything is automating, that there is a trend towards 3D printing, advanced manufacturing techniques. Anybody who takes on getting advanced degrees and improving their skills and having technology skills is by default going to be much more marketable and will have more opportunities. So that's true. Um, now, from my perspective, Building more capacity in the college systems is good and necessary, but they also have to build capacity in other ways through alternative means. And actually, this is where WSTA kind of comes to, part, to play, because we provide connections across some of the boundaries of the different educational institutions. I don't know if you might want to deal with this as a separate question. Um, but other industries like K-12 will focus on their niche. The colleges will focus on their niche. Um, you know, libraries and different organizations may also have part of this equation, but we're like an organization that kind of spans the boundaries. Go ahead. Well, speaking of education, and, and, and I, yeah, I kind of thought about that while you were talking, but recognizing non-traditional roles that organizations can play to fill the legacy educational options is really critical, uh, more so now in the 21st century and beyond than it ever has been. Uh, WSTA is an example of an organization that does that. Kids at Regional Library does it for free, uh, which is really something that um, has positioned them as much more relevant when, in an age and in a time where people are trying to say that they're no longer relevant because they're just looked at as a brick-and-mortar uh, vessel for books, and they're much, much more than that. And then there are things like Khan Academy and Coursera and all of these open source type um, opportunities um, that are recognized as viable options for getting up to speed about many subjects and disciplines, which I suppose in one way it kind of it, it aligns with what other people are saying when they say you absolutely don't not need to have a four-year degree and you can get this information from somewhere else. And yes, you can, but obviously it's going to be a much more competitive um, trying to fill those slots. And if you have an advantage through a degree, then that certainly helps. But obviously there are also certifications that are out there. You know, they've been by, you know, whether they were Sun or whether they were Oracle or whether they were Microsoft. I mean, those things are, are other options too. So what's been your experience, though, when trying to get others to understand um, and listen to that clarion bell about the alternative or non-traditional roles um, uh, or uh, options for education um, that go beyond people that are competing for millions of dollars because they have brick-and-mortar um, organizations to sustain? 
Okay, so let's let's break it down by the audience, okay? If I'm talking to the colleges, you know, they try to respond to the demands of what the workforce and the employers are looking at. Uh, people with certifications, obviously, uh, have value, as well as people with four-year degrees. If you look at the demands, or, or in two-year degrees, if you look at the demands, it really kind of is driven by the employers and their requirements. Uh, for engineering programs, uh, the shipyard doesn't need as many people in, that with two-year degrees aren't as valuable as those that actually come out with four-year degrees. Um, in tech, I think it varies. But, um, again, I think the four-year tends to be a lot more marketable than the two-year, although certifications in, in specific skill sets are, are valuable. If you're someone who's just looking for opportunity, uh, so you're the individual that's trying to seek, you know, what's the best path, I think, you know, whatever skills that, you know, are, are of your interest, I think part of it's going to be not everybody wants to be a programmer, but if that's a skill set that you enjoy that can be valuable, then certainly by all means. But leveraging technology skills is something that will parlay into a lot of careers. Maybe you're interested in cooking or something, but you know what? Eventually baking will be using 3D printers, so you know, technology will still be a useful tool even if you go into a field or if you go into auto repair, you're certainly going to be dealing with computers and automation too. So you look at it from a point of view of what's your interest and how can you balance your skills. Now, going back to the educational ins uh, institutions and how WSTA kind of works with them, we're challenging some of the rigidity that's in the educational systems. It's not a negative, it's just that it's trying to adapt, but like there's been a very clear difference between continuing education and higher ed, and those boundaries are kind of artificial. They've been created over time because students were tracked like, hey, I want to be an auto mechanic versus I want to go into higher ed and get a degree. Those were treated as two separate things. Technology kind of erases parts of those lines because the skills apply no matter what track you're going. So we're trying to create better um, what they call uh, uniformity and consistency between the tracks so that when the student's going through school, they don't have to early on saying, I'm going to be a CTE student and I, I don't want a four-year degree. I want them to be able to get certificates to get to, to, to become degrees and degrees to become better degrees over time. And they just have to figure out and fill in the gaps with the skills that they need uh, and be tested and certified on those, uh, those as well. It's, it's actually quite complicated, and there's a lot of moving pieces to it. So I think that's part of why it's taken so long. Um, there's a whole different angle, and that is what need, what's needed physically and what's needed virtually, and both are needed. And I think schools, especially higher ed, is, is struggling with this, but knowing that they need to do more of it. Students need in-person interaction, human beings need in-person human interaction. I think that's one of the reasons why we're not all virtual. Uh, but on the other hand, virtual resources can sometimes be very beneficial for delivering it, uh, education at a lower cost. The question is how effective is it and how well do the students learn and, and the cost of delivery. There's a lot of questions about that and I think they are trying to find the right, the, the right magic sauce to make it work. Part of it is you can't, we can't afford to build all the buildings that we would want so I think some mix of virtual and in-person is going to be necessary in the future, you know, to kind of create the same skill sets. And I would say that mirrors. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and what about? I was going to say that mirrors how I work. Sometimes I'm in person with the clients, and sometimes I'm working with virtual teams. So both skill sets matter. Um, where you're you're working remotely and you're working in person. 
So, but what's been your experience, you know, as WSTA, because you're you're obviously working with stakeholders and partners out there and trying to get, you know, like you just talked about, there are a lot of different organizations or even academic institutions that need to sustain themselves. So obviously that's going to be their perspective. But when you're talking about economic development and preparing students for the future and and thus, um, you know, moving your region forward or your state forward or your nation forward so that you are driving an innovative future. I mean, what are the partnerships and, and what are the experiences that you have when you're trying to get others to understand that and support that um, beyond their own self-interest, I guess is the, the bluntest way to ask that. Well, that's, I, I would say the actual answer is that is still yet to be determined, <laughs> Okay. Uh, I would say that we've gotten, with, with the message I just delivered to you, I would get almost no argument from most higher ed education and people in industry. They, they recognize that this is the way things are and that we need to make changes. Now, the question becomes, and will be still, still to be determined, is where will they make their investments, right? I mean, higher ed right. would like to have a lot of investment in order to grow, and they need some for sure, absolutely. Um, is there going to be enough investment in, in, in other alternatives? Like, is WSTA going to be supported more officially to create some of these initiatives that cross the boundaries? That I don't know. I think we've gotten some support. We certainly got a lot of people saying we're doing a great job. But, you know, it's also where do you put your money is where you, you, know, you put your energy. And for some organizations, there's still a strong tendency to try to support and work within your silo. So for, I went to the Washington State STEM event, and I could see very clearly that they were very focused on solving some of the K-12 and the connections with higher ed. So they were looking at that path structure. But it was somebody in the audience that said, hey, you, you guys haven't even touched on how libraries are part of your scenario. You know, and I know that they provide you know, un, you know, public access, you know, people who aren't in, in the K-12 system. If it's an adult seeking literacy, and in education that didn't get it in the K-12 system, he's outside of your scope of work. Um, and same with uh, somebody like WSTA, you know, students that have already graduated through K-12, we can't just write off everybody who's an adult and say, you know, well, I'm sorry, you've already grown up, you missed your opportunity to get a tech education, so see you later. You can't do that. We've got to be able to leverage resources. And I think, you know, legislators and other organizations have said that they like what we're doing, but the, the level and amount of support has not been there in many cases financially or with investment in labor and time uh, to what we would like. And I'm not exactly sure if that's just because they're focused on their own field, if they can't really grasp the, the cross-boundary type efforts very well. Um, I'm not sure. You know, I think we're still trying to figure that out. I think there's one argument I make sometimes is people think, Tech is so dynamic and so wonderful and such a great sector and taking off in so many ways that that somehow creates a halo that it will take care of itself. And that is absolutely not true. A technology economy is something that can be fragile like so many other things. And, you know, the fact that we've built it here doesn't mean we can't lose elements of it to elsewhere. I mean, it has ebbed and flowed as it already has. And so... If we want to create and sustain, you know, technology jobs in our economy and have workforce that's trained, we have to work on a lot of efforts, not just K-12, not just higher ed, uh, veteran retraining, 
working with other organizations, organizations like WSTA that help create boundaries that become um, facilitators and, and host the forum of bridging a lot of different types of organizations to bring together and work on a, on a subject or topic. I'd love to see more organizations do it. I love the partners we have worked with, but there are more that need to be at the table, and, and uh, that will remain to be seen. And you, I recall um, just going, thinking about education and um, K through 12 versus K through 20, and then even beyond that, when you're in the workforce, which is so, you know workforce development, and then in some cases work retraining, which is what you're just describing. But I saw a Forbes yeah. article um, which mentioned a survey that found that one in five students were in a school that had a comprehensive strategy for the use of technology across all subjects. And then fewer than one in six had access to the technology that would enable them to develop the type of collaboration, problem-solving, self-regulation skills that would be needed in the economy of the future. And then there's the, yeah. you know, if you want to do the, the, there was a comment that said, you know, we're competing against the rest of the world, not just here. Uh, and, and that's true, because, but this, let's talk about Europe. There are about, I want to say, 900,000 ICT jobs in Europe alone that will be left unfilled by 2020 if action isn't taken to close the skills gap. And we've had that information through Code.org. We've had it through Voices for Innovation, which is more of an advocacy arm of Microsoft. And uh, countries such as England, Estonia, Greece, they're on track for introducing compulsory coding for children that are from five, uh, you know, age of five years old and up. And in England, in particular, has been a world leader in that. They were actually the first country to mandate coding in schools from the ages of five through 14. So there have been some great strides uh, in our nation. There have also been some great strides in Kitsap region, um, you know, getting, you know, like uh, Bainbridge Island School District and Bremerton School District, uh, partnering up with Code.org to get some more curriculum in the school. Uh, the effort that uh, was out there that's nationwide uh, to get computer science uh, counting towards uh, graduation requirements as part of their, their core credit. And, and so a lot of these things are taking place. DigiPen, you know, some of the uh, projects, some are fun uh, workshops that are with what you guys did with uh, West Sound Skills Technical Center, DigiPin, WSTA, and Olympic College, and, and trying to you know keep the kids motivated and interested in, in stuff like that. So you talked about some of the things that you wanted to see partners and stakeholders do to keep the momentum going and the silos. And I think part of it might be also the expectation or the perception that they have of what those other organizations are. So if you look at someone like one organization might look at you guys and say, we're doing this great thing and we're getting this great big grant and it's going to be hundreds of thousands of or millions of dollars and we're going to do this, 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 and this. And then they turn and look at you guys and go, well, you know, you can help us promote that. And, and, and so I think that, you know, in a way of pushing back a little bit on WSTA is that it's incumbent upon you to make people understand that you are more than just the community resource that people can use for free to advertise someone else's initiatives and that you know it's it's important to make sure that they understand what they can do in terms of providing you with funding and what you could do with that funding to stretch their initiative and the scope of their effort much further so that was just a thought and speaking of which um, moving into some of the things that you guys are doing, there's another angle here with the big data, open data, you know, talking about, you know, beyond just the schools and the jobs, dealing with public sector and government where it can not only become more efficient um, by the use of that, but it facilitates entrepreneurship and economic development. Uh, so it's not just about finding a job, it's about people that are creating businesses and creating ideas, you know, whether that's crowdsourcing, contests, a portal where users can express, you know, express a need, fill a need kind of thing. 
And you yes. have a briefing coming up in February that you're trying to put together. So can you talk about that a little bit and what you guys are hoping to achieve? Yes, we're 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 hoping to have. Uh, we, I know we have Will Saunders, uh, who uh, runs the Open Data Initiatives for the State of Washington, on board, and Bud Harris, who uh, runs the County IT Systems. And there's and we're hoping to get some more. We we got a couple of uh, uh, feelers out there to kind of develop this. But you know, leveraging puppet. First, I want to say everything you said before is absolutely on mark. You know, we need to get more of our partners to step up. Um, you know, working with organizations like the county and the library system, we are looking forward to partnering with the library. And yes, we need to we need to be more than just a marketing organization. We might start a topic or bring awareness to a topic. I think there's several key values that WSTA creates. One, we are a very broad but very deep in terms of our technology talent organization. There's a lot of different skill sets. We are the brain trust of the county in a lot of ways when it comes to technology. So we have the skills and the credibility to talk about a subject, to talk about its pros and cons. We're not just there to sell something, but to talk about its potential value and how it might apply in Kitsap County or to a particular business or sets of businesses. Um, and I think that's the value, one of the values we bring. Obviously, we have some deep marketing talent. And I think our last thing is we are an independent organization for creating partnerships so we can bridge gaps that others might not get. And so we do want to work with fund partners that do get funding, not just to market their initiatives, but to partner with them and to help leverage and extend those initiatives to make them stronger. The Big Data Open Data is a perfect example, um, and we're looking forward to that in February. And uh, actually, just tomorrow, we're going to have a, uh, a visioning event uh, on Bainbridge Island. So if you come to westsoundtechnology.org and look us up, uh, we would love to have people engaged because we're going to be talking about what we plan to do in all of 2015 and the different initiatives that have to be in place. So, so the open big data thing is – okay, got it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's good. Open big data will be our first. It will be a breakfast briefing. Uh, it will be a panel format. And uh, but basically it's about leveraging public data sets. And, um, and and also it can be uh, – and the uh, the kind of opportunities that come from uh, big data type analysis is, is moving beyond business intelligence to the next level. Okay, so there's music in the background. Anyway, um, you uh, were talking about partnerships and just kind of uh, doing one more thing on that um, and, and identifying where you fit in in the ecosystem so that um, when you do come up with an inf a piece of information or a resource or an opportunity, and then you share that with your partners or your other stakeholders, and then they act on that, and then you come together as a group and achieve a certain objective. And then in reverse, where somebody is interested in something that's tech-related and there's some type of brain trust, white paper, think tank, or some type of resource that's required of you, and, and people know to, to come to you for that. And, and yeah, I think that's very important. I mean, we just had something come down the wire with an acquaintance of ours that has this this game-changing type technology and company where they were just announcing GeekWire, and um, they just they're they're negotiating their five million dollar um, round of funding and. You know, this is something that is going to change the way that um, we deal with with vitamin D deficiencies around the world. I'm sure, and they're going to be in pharmacies and health clubs and everything else. And so, you know, you kind of reach out to a partner and say, hey, "I don't know what you want to do with this this company," because by the way, they're also local, and the CEO has bought and sold uh, several startups in the hundreds of millions. And so, th this is a brain trust that we want to 
you know, shake their hand at the very least, say we see you and see, you know, how we can help them. I don't know if you're trying to grow your business. I don't know if you need more exposure or, you know, I don't know if you need a form to talk about what you're doing so we can go spread the word. I don't know what you need, but what's important is that we now know about you and you're here. And so I you know, basically dropped a feather into the Grand Canyon on that, where I sent it out to our Economic Development Alliance here, and nothing. I mean, not a thank you, not a let's think about it, not a we'll get back to you, just nothing. And so I think that beyond just looking at uh, organizations and how you can partner together, it's how do you look at stakeholders and how do you want information and what are you willing to act upon um, as a region so that you can advance, you know, your, your educational and um and, and market capital and and all kinds of things so that you can improve yourselves and i think that goes back to you know knowing what each organization does so that your expectations are managed and when you send them that information you expect them to act so do you have any thoughts about that or no you know i guess how long you want to talk about that there's there's a lot of angles to that <laughs> i do realize that part of it is they may not see us as – they will say that we're part of the economic development strategy for the region. And I think every organization or every um, area, not only county in, in Washington, but probably all over the United States, there are many places that want to see more technology jobs, that want to see their technology economy improve, that look at technology as the future for where careers and jobs are growing. Um, so the flip side of that is – there is intense competition. Then becomes the truth that the belief is, well, do you really compete for those jobs or not? And I think underlying some of the, the, the lip service that says, yes, we, we have a great technology economy or we're competitive, I think underlying that there is a potential belief that we're not competitive. And as a result, they don't try as hard as they would for something that they would normally fight for. Um, they kind of let it see if it's going to fly on its own kind of thing. And if that's the case, I think they're not doing us a, a, a service. They're not, they're not putting the energy in where they need to to try to create a success. And as a result, there, there's the possibility is, you know, the technology economy jobs won't grow here as fast or won't grow at all. They'll grow in other areas where uh, it's, it's more, you know, there's more opportunity, there's more talent, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a lot of technology companies will form in an area based upon two things. Where are the principles um, and where's the talent? Those are the two things I think that, that can drive where technology companies will form. I think in other cases it may be spin-offs from higher education, it could be funding. There are some other factors as well. But I think, hey, you know what, if the if the principal grew up on Bainbridge Island or grew up in, in Silverdale or Pulsebow and if they want to see, um, uh, they want to, they, their family has roots there, they may want to grow their business there. But if they find that they can't find talented workers, they'll move. They'll move to another area where they can find a talented workforce that they need. So I think part of our goal is why we kind of started and pushed on the educational side of it, and even with our code, is to raise awareness that we need to create that talented workforce here. Um, Part of that will be working with the existing educational establishments and institutions, but I think a lot of times, again, the silo mentality come along. People treat that as a K-12 or a higher education, and they know they have organizations to deal with that, and they don't necessarily know where to put somebody like WSTA. And uh, maybe that's why, you know, but again, they should see us for who we're able to reach out to and connect with. 
we recognize opportunities because we work in that field. That's our experience. That's our skill set. Uh, we need to get other organizations more engaged in that uh, partnership cycle. And I also think I also wonder, also I also wonder to brief. some extent whether or not it's a you know a, a generational thing or or maybe it's just a, a question of this this region has relied for so many uh, decades on the military and defense and by virtue of that by extension of that you could talk about things like aviation or whatever and so you can go out there and you can blaze a new trail and and try to do the whole tech thing recognizing that it's not just for geeks anymore and create an entire new uh, way of thinking and operating and and building jobs, or you can just uh, go with what's safe and and go with you know the the bread and butter and go with the military and expanding on that with the defense and then going for the aerospace. And I think it goes back to the title of the episode that you helped choose with us, Adapt or Die, uh, and that's not only just about education and not only about tech, but it's also about strategy. You have to either adapt to the 21st century and what the requirements are and how it's changing the landscape, or you are going to perish in a lot of ways. Um, and speaking of adapting, uh, let's talk about Common Core, because we got, we've got we gotten a couple of comments about what about Common Core. Um, so, Big backlash and hyperbole about what it is and what should be done, um, but the bottom line is the USA K through 12 has pretty much been abysmal compared to other parts of the world. And the uniform standards or performance measurements and milestones, in my opinion, aren't a bad thing. It's not a perfect solution. Um, the best teachers, I think, will still continue to reach students beyond curriculum limitations, perceived or otherwise. And there are individual school districts that still have the ability to choose within those standards. So it's not just a, a, a box that they can only uh, they can't move around inside of that. There are other issues. I can't even talk anymore. There are other issues in education to address. Um, but in many respects, it's more rigorous and competitive, you know, when you talk about Common Core, with nations that are outperforming the United States. So yes. I started thinking about I, Common I, Core I, and how many, you know, 44. Okay, so let's just throw out some, some stats here just so we know what we're up against, and then I want you to talk about uh, Common Core. And 44 of the 50 U.S. states and the District of Columbia are, are members of the Common Core State Standards Initiative. Um, Oklahoma, Texas, Virginia, Alaska, Nebraska, and Indiana um, did not adopt the initiative at a state level. Minnesota adopted the English Language Arts Standard, but not the Mathematics Standard. And several states initially adopted Common Core. They've since started voting to repeal or replace it. And those states are Indiana and Missouri, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and South Carolina. So what are your thoughts about Common Core, pros and cons, um, and, and sort of the way through? Okay, so let's just let's talk in pros. Okay, for, first off, the pro for uh, Common Core is it's, it's, a, it's a standard across state boundaries that allows testing and measurements to be comparable across states so that in Arkansas doesn't have a different testing standard than Wyoming or Washington. And, in fact, the curriculum is harmonized. And when it comes to math and reading, you want people to have the same kind of language, the same kind of syllabus. And I think in many cases they were. Maybe they tweaked them a little bit. I think some of the arguments with Common Core was that it raised the standards bar for many states, but for a few it dropped them because they were even more aggressive in their standards. The complaints mm -hmm. that requires change, that's one of the negatives. 
uh, that it requires adaptation, that there's a ramp-up period and all that, well, that comes with almost anything. If you're going to make a change to the system to make an improvement, you're going to have to change it, and there will be an adaptation required. Uh, there were arguments that there wasn't enough educators involved in the Common Core development of the curriculum, that it was mostly the educational testing uh, people that were involved in creating the standards. Well, if the educational testing pattern people obviously involved in education and obviously involved with testing and finding measurable metrics in order to evaluate students were involved, uh, I would say yes, it's a there's, a, there's a validity to the argument uh, that maybe teachers should have been more involved if they could have tailored the curriculum more or they could have adjusted it. The question then becomes, well, let's see what that looks like. I don't think the answer is repeal and start over because cre you have to create some kind of baseline and then improve. If you keep scratching and starting over or never even creating something in the beginning, I think they realized the old system was broken. We couldn't have 50 standards and compete with other nations that had a unified national standard. It had been shown that these other nations were doing a better job of educating their kids, and we had to do something. I think we couldn't afford to have 50 different individual education systems not coordinated. Okay? So now if Texas wants to go off and be another nation, I guess that's part of why they've always done their, their own way. Now, the question I would gather from them is, why did they do that? What Superior value do they get by being not part of the Common Core? Is it because they wanted to add something that wasn't part of the Common Core and they wanted to do something better, or did they opt out because it was easier to opt out? Obviously, if they opted out because it was easier to opt out, well, I think they're shooting themselves in the foot. If they want to offer something better, then to me the answer is try to figure out a way to evolve the Common Core to improve it. It's a standard baseline that we can now build upon. I know that... It has standards for math and education and English. It does not have standards for science and social studies, which probably eventually should also be wrapped into a national curriculum because, well, heck, I mean, physics and chemistry are the same whether you're in Wyoming or Washington State. Why shouldn't it be part of a, a, a standard uh, that kids can understand some things? Especially since, again, our economy is going to become a lot more tech, technology imbued you're going to require technology skills. You're going to have to know more about science because of the automation and robotics. So, heck, yes, that should eventually. In fact, I would see greater investments in adaptation to Common Core and grow it rather than competing with it as a standard. Now, all that aside. I had a. I had just had a Go comment ahead. that came in that said that according to the National Education Association, the Common Core state standards are supported by 76% of its teacher members. There you go. Well, okay, so 76% is a good number. Um, I'd like to figure out where the uh, other 34 are standing. Okay. Well, maybe uh, or, I mean, maybe it's really um, maybe it's just really a politicized issue because I've seen a lot of things out there from people that I really like and respect, and it it falls on um, political spectrum. I mean, there's a left versus right thing that I see happening. If you're more libertarian or more conservative um, or Tea Party or Republican, I tend to see a lot more, you know, common core sucks, common core sucks mantra. And, and, and a lot of times when I'm looking at that, what, what I see as the complaint from them is that this is some sort of mandate from on high from the government trying to get into the education business, and that's what they're really pushing up against or, or 
are resisting. And then some people are talking about how stupid the math is and how, you know, just a, a lot of different things. But looking at it from a whole, if you step back and look at the educational system, the United States educational system and how it, uh, it links up as compared to other nations, it's not a good uh, comparison. It's not a good number. We're not doing well. And so instead of, you know, always sitting there and knocking back everything that people come up with, you know, the, the challenge is, what would you do? What's your solution? Okay. You know, we're, we're, okay, we're uh, trying uh, to, it, it, so yeah, I mean, it's a okay. rhetorical question, but in, in some ways it's, what would you do? What would you tell, uh, what would WSTA do? What its members do what is your what is your message as a as a community resource to people that are looking for some guidance on this well okay two two things uh i'll go back to um a report from a long time ago that said you know the educational system when you look at the united states um we do a good job our high end students will do well in this and and we also and we have a superb higher education system in fact a lot of countries send their students here for our university system um so it's mostly the k twelve and it's the issue of students that are at the low you know the low end and the high end get 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 somewhat taken care of and this but the students in the middle do not i i don't know if the the low end is really as well taken care of as well as we think but in other words. We necessarily don't have some of the same binders to help the middle students excel. And if I look at something like Common Core, I think it's something that's designed to help middle students try to get to a higher standard. They're trying to move the mass of students. Now, there are some concerns with people that say we don't have enough opportunities for more advanced students, like Common Core sets a bar and it requires so much energy that it kind of sucks everything towards the middle. If that's okay, true, right. okay, if that's true, that means we are going to be more like some other countries and we will improve our baseline standards. But I think we have enough, we, there's other opportunities. You and I as parents also know that you should not assume that all education is provided at school. Education is a lifelong process and it is around you 24-7 every day of the week, every, every day of the year. And so for our daughter... Um, we try to give her other educational opportunities that are not just connected with stuff at school, but other things as well. Uh, our right. system allows enough flexibility. You know, our our whole agrarian calendar, school calendar for a lot of issues that that creates is is kind of a legacy. But I think you know we have the opportunity because the school day does not consume our students. They're not in school all the time. They have opportunities to take other types of curriculum and classes. That has also been pointed out sometimes as creating good left-right brain type students. One of the knocks against other systems and a pro for the United States is that we tend to do a better job of creating some creative thinkers, okay? Not just students that are good at, you know, at testing and uh, regurgitating facts. Common Core... Yes, Right. Yeah, that brings good, up a good point about um, you know when we're talking creative. about Common Core and and mm -hmm. accountability and testing and scores and so you know the the end game for some people is what are you looking for are you are you measuring them based upon how they're testing and how they're being scored or are there other measurements that we can actually employ that give us a holistic view or a, a feedback loop regarding how that student's really doing and so if you're pushing everything towards the middle as you say um, and it's 
really just about trying to, to, to get the right score, then we're kind of missing the point on that, too, because it's really, you know, organizations or teachers or schools trying to justify themselves from our funding by getting a certain score. Um, and then it's looking at the student, but then, of course, it's not really looking at the teacher as part of that um, piece of the puzzle as to why certain people or certain schools are, are, are not performing um you know, appropriately. So um, anything else that you'd like to add about Common Core or any other topics that we've talked about today? Okay. Just to clarify a couple things, I, I don't think it pushes everybody to the middle, but it does, there's kind of like a gravity in, in the way it's designed. I think there's some knocks that the system doesn't have, like, uh, you know, if some student is challenged in some way, there's not a special curriculum that allows them to ramp up into the Common Core, things like that. I think there's are things that are going to have to be adjusted over time. Um, so, I mean, it's not perfect, but it's a great, I think it's a good start, I think is the way I would put it. And I think we need to look at how we can improve it over time. And nothing should be considered uh, written in stone, and that's the only way to do it. I think we have to evolve it and improve it over over time. Okay. So, um, Anything else you'd like to add for the good of the order regarding WSTA or tech for geeks or... Just something, well, food think, for thought for people? Okay, so food for thought, uh, I think we've done a great job with Hour of Code over the last two years, but I think we've kind of rang that bell pretty loudly, and we've got a lot of buy-in. So now uh, what we have to start thinking about in 2015, obviously we want to imbue those kinds of efforts and thinking on a more ongoing basis in the school districts. So I think we have to create some partnerships where we, you know, get some of the geeks and people to volunteer and go into school districts and, and work with kids in coding. I think there's going to be more advanced curriculum because once you get somebody interested, they want to do the next thing, and then they want to do the next thing, and it's so on and so on. We have to build the whole ladder so that as they go up, they can get more and more advanced curriculum. I think there's some pieces there. I think there's a few missing rungs that we have to add to the ladder. And I think WST is going to be working with uh, Kitsap Regional Library and the school districts as well. And I think after you get through the whole pipeline of STEM, I think there are a lot of workers that need retraining. Uh, sometimes it's older workers that want to get opportunities that don't even get looked at because they're older. Um, I, so there's other opportunities out there that I think we'll be able to work on uh, that aren't even really being addressed yet because it's just such a critical need. Uh, we're just trying to, you know, it's kind of a shotgun approach right now. We're trying to hit a lot of targets, and um, I think we're doing a good job. We've, we've created awareness. Now we've got to kind of take it to the next stage. So we want people to work with us. We want people to come to the table. We're a volunteer organization. We need your support. We need your sponsorship. We need your investments. Um, and we definitely need you to think about and be a part of the solution here. Yeah, you brought up an interesting point about, uh, you know, and that's another subject for another time, but, you know, veterans and, and ageism, basically, let's just call it what it is. Uh, and, you know, and also, you know, thinking about the Washington STEM Summit that we went to probably a week or so ago, when Boston Consulting Group, they were talking about choke points. And, you know, thinking that because you're pushing people through with schools and hour of code and coding and everything else, there are still choke points beyond that once they graduate that actually can can hinder their progress and moving forward, whether it's in education or whether it's in, you know, industry or whether it's in entrepreneurship and, and, and looking at those and finding out what those are. And I think some of the things that you mentioned might be part of that system, even if it's not a student that's K through 20. Um, the other thing that I thought of, I wanted to say, and I kind of had a brain fart here, but whatever. I'll think about it for some other show, but it, it's really just about um, understanding, 
you know, the role that so many organizations play in trying to flesh out the school experience. And there is a perception by some that everything has to take place in the schools and the schools have to do everything in the small period of time, um, the hours that they have. And, and so I agree with you. It's a lifelong learning process. It's something that's a lot more um, inclusive in terms of lifestyle. Um, we are on the road and we can work from anywhere. Um, most people are 24-7, 365. So it's not just about what takes place in the school. It can also be the library. It can also be at WS. TA. It could be with Seattle Coder Dojo. There's a lot of different opportunities, you know, to gel, you know, the experience, so to speak. So I, I definitely agree with getting outside the box in terms of thinking that you have to legislate um, and continue to, to beat on the, the public, quote-unquote, school system as the panacea for all things educational, as if they're going to be covering all of it. They should certainly cover a bulk of it because that's why they were created, but I think that we need to start to, to think more adaptively in terms of other opportunities opportunities to get our students involved so that we don't feel like they're limited um, if they, the district or a school is not performing at the level that we would like. So anything Absolutely. else you'd like to add? Yeah, I say we, we definitely want to think outside the box because we don't even have a box. <laughs> we're, we're like the homeless virtual organization, but we are here. There are definitely a lot of people engaged. And I think the key thing is for people who have any kind of interest in this whatsoever to get engaged, uh, to get engaged with their school districts, to get engaged with organizations like WSTA, to get engaged with their economic development organizations, libraries. All these different organizations have different roles, pieces to the puzzle. An organization mm -hmm. like WSTA uh, is kind of like a, um, a focus point for what kind of policies do we want to create? What kind of future do we want to create? What kind of awareness of issues do we want to create? And I don't think you can ever do enough of that because things are changing so rapidly and so fast that I think, you know, for a lot of people it's kind of like they, they hold their breath like, I don't know what to do. They just don't know what to do. It's, there's just not enough money and, and not enough talent and not enough people. How are we going to get, how are we going to solve this problem? On the other hand, we have no choice. We have to solve this problem. We have to create the workforce that we uh, are going to, and, and we will find a way, uh, but it's going to require change. And that's gonna, there's going to be a lot of resistance and a lot of, uh, we, have to, we have to steer the resources into areas so that we can create the kind of workforce that we are going to, going to need. And, yes, some of that's generational. I think, uh, um, you know, some generations, you know, they, they resist, you know, they want to fall back on what they know, and I understand that. Uh, but we, and there are others that, you know, don't have that, that gap or that issue at all. They realize where things are headed, and they're invested, and they're going that way. And I want to get more people on the page looking towards where we're going in the future. So with that note, I will say, you know, come out and join us at our visioning event tomorrow if you are around. Uh, December 18th, it will be on Bainbridge Island. Check out westsoundtechnology.org, and uh, we would welcome you to be part of the solution. Sounds good to me. Thank you for uh sharing your time and uh, being on the show today and for tuning in this afternoon, everyone that's out there. So much more we could discuss here, but um, this broadcast is turning into a podcast on our Blog Talk Radio site at iTunes, which you can see the purple icon there, or just search for us, or on Facebook at backslash STR8 Talk Radio, Sam Tommy Roger, the number eight, and Talk Radio. Don't lurk, don't be a stranger, follow us, like us, spread the word, talk to us. So, thank you. This is your host, 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is Donya Keating signing off. It's about 3.25 p.m. December 17th. <laughs>